Well, we're in our series called When the World Turned Upside Down. And in case you are just joining us, this title for this series is not taken from a headline today. It's actually taken from a place in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 6. It's a really interesting, really fascinating moment where the message of Jesus is starting to spread and the character of these Jesus followers is sort of contagious. They're they're spreading all over the world. They're going to new places. And there's this moment in Acts chapter 17 when some of the disciples of Jesus go to a city called Thessalonica. They are living out the, the love, the grace of Jesus so profoundly that literally it begins to upset the social systems. It begins to cause disruption in the culture. And there's this group of dissenters, these people who can't stand that this message has come here. And they rally together. And there's this moment where they literally say, these men who have changed the world or turned the world upside down, they have come here also. Now, in no way was that meant to be a compliment. And yet if it was me, it would be the greatest compliment. Because what they're saying is this, that these individuals, these people were living the gospel out so beautifully that the world was changing as a result of it. By the way, that's not because they were protesting in the streets, uh, fighting some decision that was made in a courtroom. It's not because they were crowding the halls of government or certainly not because they were demanding their own rights be met. It was happening because the love and the grace of Jesus was so profound in them that it was literally liberating the oppressed and that there were unjust systems that were being unwound and redone in the society. They were the new humanity and culture is changing because of it. Now, the reason we're leaning into this story is that we're asking questions about how this might look today. Like what would happen if today, the church today was so filled with the love of Christ, so empowered by the spirit of God that it might be said of us, they are turning the world upside down. Like what would that look like? That's our hope. And this journey through Acts is informing us of the way. How would this look? How would we do this? And ultimately, that brings us to this text that's very important, very challenging, in some ways, very strange today. Today's text, what it does is it reveals a threat that comes against the church and could limit the capacity of a gathering of believers or a community of faith actually turning the world upside down. There is a threat that comes against it that has to be addressed. It has to be identified. But before I get to it, let me just explain something about threats. Up until this point in the story, all of the threats that have come against this new humanity, this new community of faith, all of them are coming from the outside. They're all external threats. It's people, it's agendas, it's governments, it's, it's the systems and the structure around them. But now there's a shift in the story. And what we see is that this threat, a very significant threat, is one that comes from the inside. In fact, I just want to make this really clear the greatest threats to the church being the church, actually fulfilling what it was designed to fulfill, they don't come from outside. They actually come from inside. It's when there's something that happens in a church. It's when there's an attitude that's in a church, a perspective that begins to grow in a church. There's things that are pervasive in a church culture. And when those things begin to rise up inside the church, that's when the church stops being the church. I think after reading today, after looking at the text, you're going to see that that one of the biggest threats is something that we have to be aware of today. We have to lean into and make sure that we don't fall into these same types of behaviors so that we can be a church who turns the world 
upside down. So I want us to read together. I'm going to read the passage, and then together we're going to unpack some of the insights that that emerge out of this text. So if you have a Bible, it's Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 4. We're going to move into chapter 5. This is what it says beginning in verse 36. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Uh, The young man rose, and they wrapped him up, and they carried him out, and they buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. That is the text for today. That is the story. By the way, as as I read this, this story reminds me of people I've met over the years who say, you know, I'm going to start a new church and this new church is going to be so refreshing and so cutting edge and so new. And, And then they'll also say things like, and I want it to be just like the first church, the church of the book of Acts. And whenever I hear someone say that, I think, do you want it to be like this church, like Acts chapter four and five church where people literally are dropping dead in the auditorium? Like, is that the kind of thing you want to create? Um, when you think about this story, it's actually really troubling. Like, this is a story of judgment and instant consequence. It, it even ends with it saying that people around the church were living in fear because of what was happening. And you think, well, of course they were living in fear, right? I mean, if If you watched this, you would be afraid too. Now, let me just explain on a scholarly level, there are some commentators that um, they attempt to dismiss this. They they try to explain around this. They try to not make it look the way that it is. In fact, some scholars try to get God off the hook by saying, well, this story is really just a myth that existed in the early church. It wasn't real. But let me just ask you this. Even if it was a myth, even if it was a legend, the question would still remain, why would the early church include a story like this in the narrative of who they are becoming. I mean, it, it seems to put them, it seems to put God in a bad light. And so if it weren't true, this is just the kind of story you'd say, no, no, that's a rumor, that's a myth. We, that actually didn't happen. It'd be stricken from the record. So how does this story exist in the context of a group of people who are preaching that God is loving and forgiving? How does a story like this exist in a community of people who are experiencing grace and extending it, lavishing it on other people? Why would they let that story hold this sort of place? Why would they leave it in the narrative? So I want to clear a few things up about this. First, I think it's really important for us to understand that this is in the New Testament and somebody dies. And I'm just going to address something here for a moment. Um, This is how the story goes. A New Testament story and someone dies. 
And sometimes you'll hear people talk about the Bible and they'll say, like, it has two parts. Like, there's this bloody, violent Old Testament part in which God just randomly takes people out for all sorts of unknown reasons. And then there's this New Testament part where God is just loving and forgiving and nothing bad ever happens to anyone. And and, and Jesus, you know, makes sure that nothing bad ever happens. Like, everyone is nice and everyone is good. And the truth is this. The truth is there's a fair amount of death in the New Testament and there's pretty significant amount of love and grace that's exhibited in the Old Testament. So I want to move past those sort of simplistic categories, like there was old and new, and old is violent and new isn't. That's just not the case. The Bible is far more complex than that, partially because life is more complex than that. So the second thing I want to mention is this, and this is unique to us today watching from our, our vantage point. When we read this story we're reading a story that's written by an actual human being reflecting how he saw the world. And that's how we understand this. This is, by the way, not a new idea. It might be a revolutionary idea for some of you, but, but this, is, this is just how it is. We're reading somebody's interpretation of how he sees the world. So I want you to remember that this story is written in the first century. During the first century, people had a far more mythical worldview than we do today. Like they believe things like volcanoes erupt because uh, the gods are upset. Storms come because of a conflict between goddesses and crops don't grow because of divine displeasure. That's the kind of stuff that people believed. Um, This story is written roughly 1,400 years before the scientific revolution. So data and evidence and proof, that isn't a primary part of people's worldview. They don't see the world through that kind of lens. So because of that, there's this tendency for us today, looking back, to dismiss this as a myth because people just thought differently back then. They just didn't understand what was really happening. But, but think about this for just a moment. Um, let's say that you're standing at Jimmy John's and, uh, and you're about to order a sandwich and somebody runs in and they've got a mask on. And a, although um, everybody has a mask on at Jimmy John's these days, but you know what I'm saying. They come in, they've got a mask on, they've got a gun in their hand and they begin screaming and they, they're, they're demanding. They're, they're throwing customers to the ground. They jump the counter, they open the register. They're, they're filling their, their bag with all of the money and maybe all the cold cuts too, whatever. They're into that sort of thing. And uh, they're threatening to shoot somebody. And so they gather their things up and then that individual runs out of, the, out of the Jimmy John's and you're all standing there watching and he runs into the street and immediately as he steps into the roadway, a car strikes him and kills him. There's something in that moment that you will think as you see it take place. The guy just robbed a Jimmy John's and he was rude and violent and threatening and he's struck by a passing car. What you think about happens in the next second is exactly the kind of thing we all think about. You probably think something like, he got what was coming to him. He deserved this. That's fitting. Like justice is poetic. You would think those sort of things. In fact, just now as I was telling that story and you imagine this man being struck after those kinds of things, if you had any thoughts, you were connecting those events very naturally. Dude robs a store gets hit by a truck. You connect those things. The one event connected to the other one. Of course, that's justice. The universe was just put back in balance. You reap what you sow. There's all those sorts of things. Your mind naturally wants to connect those two events. 
even though today, living in our age, we have been influenced by the scientific revolution, even though most of us would at some point say, but let's, let's look for some data, let's look for some proof to say these events were connected. We've had it drilled into our heads that you need actual evidence, something to support some sort of convoluted idea like this. And yet your neurology can't help but connect the two. If he does this and that happens, it just makes sense. So you go back a couple thousand years in history and you can see how Luke would tell a story implying that Ananias and Sapphira, that they, that they lied and that led to their death. In the first century, that was very normal and natural. They didn't have a scientific revolution to cause them to question that. This happened because of this. So Luke's storytelling here is an excellent example of how people see the world. But unfortunately, we moderns, we want to explain away what actually happened. So in the absence of proof, in the absence of data, we come up with these explanations. Well, maybe Ananias had a heart condition and maybe, maybe they both ate too much red meat. Who knows? And so they just happened to, to die in this moment. Maybe um, there's some sort of psychosocial pressure that was being put upon them and that, that caused them to have this sort of response. Maybe um, they died from food poisoning and it just happened to happen close enough to these events. I mean, we can explain all of these things. And yet in our explanation, in our misunderstanding, in our confusion, we actually miss the point of the story. None of that is what this is about. The further we go down that rabbit hole, the further we travel from the power of what's being communicated to us. Let me just say this. The only explanation for a story like this one being included is that there must be something critical that's found within it that defines who we are as a church. Remember, the, the writer of this book, Luke, the book of Acts is written by him. He has lots of material to draw on. He could tell all sorts of stories all sorts of accounts, all sorts of memories. He could make all sorts of choices on what to include. And yet he chooses this on purpose, which means there's a message here. So the question then is, well, what is it? What is the question that's being answered? What's being resolved? What's the lesson that this could possibly mean? And how could this, how could this in any way be helpful for us? Now, every now and then, let me just remind you of this. Every now and then through the book of Acts, um, Luke, this, this author, takes a step back and he describes the community of faith. We see it in Acts chapter two. We see it in Acts chapter four. We're gonna see it in the chapters to come as we move through this series. And it's like the, the, the feature list of this church. And let me just give you a couple of examples. Things like they held to the apostles' teaching. Um, they, they held certain things to be true about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, they had this deep, meaningful life together. Uh, they, they didn't just, by the way, roll in and, and hear a message a couple times a month. There was like some sort of serious engagement. They were deeply committed to living out the mission of God together. They lived out the gospel in community. Um, there was this commitment to prayer and worship. They, they gathered together. They sang songs together. These were all things that were true over and over and over. We, we see this description. So these are repeated multiple times, but there's only one thing that seems to be repeated every time there's a description of this new community. And it's this, they were radical about their generosity. Like the quantifiable measure of the grace of God among them is the way that people were being physically, tangibly cared for. Those who were most vulnerable, they were taken care of. Those, those that were poor were taken care of. Those that had needs, had their needs met. Why? Because one of the last things, I truly believe this, and this, by the way, this is such a beautiful sign of God's work. 
Um, one of the last things to be redeemed in most of us is our individualism. It's one of the, the last places that the gospel can actually address in our hearts. It, as it relates to our possessions and our rights, our individualism is one of the most difficult things for the gospel to really get at. Even, even the word possession, when you think about it, speaks to our ideology of stuff. We possess these things. Luke, he wants us to know that this resurrection led to a formation of community, a formation of honest people who gave themselves to the well-being of other people. That's what he's telling us, that they did whatever was needed to make sure that everyone had their needs met. He, he just says this over and over again. They were highly aware of, of the divine presence in their midst that led them to, to being just convicted and giving them hope about a better world being possible. And then we see this generosity. And I just want to make this statement very clear to you, that the grace of God does not make us fortunate receivers, as we often think, but it makes us generous givers. That's what it stirs up inside of us. Not just, oh, we're so grateful, now we can receive more. The grace of God makes us generous givers. It uproots the most deeply rooted form of idolatry in the human heart, and that is our idolatry of stuff, our stuff. According to Luke, one of the most direct results of this grace of God at work is taking care of people's needs, food and water and shelter and clothing and health. He says this over and over again. So grace this idea, this concept of, of grace, that is not a, an abstract theological idea, but it is something, it is, it is a reality that is leading people to take action on behalf of other people. Grace has implications. Grace leads you somewhere. Grace creates human connection. It, it creates community. It, it, it grounds us in a place where we can actually meet needs, real needs with real people in real ways. That's what it does. Like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes when people talk about the economy and politics, um, their convictions about how things should be, um, when, you, when you hear them talk about these things, you subtly, and sometimes maybe not so subtly, you pick up on the belief that we're on our own. You start to hear these ideas, this individualism, that, that we need to work as hard as we can to get what we need. And this idea that what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. We hear this. We live in a highly individualistic culture, even more so today than I think ever before. And it's interesting to note that of all the things Luke could tell us about the early church, one of the most important things is that you are not on your own. You are actually embedded. You are a part of a community. You are a part of a humanity. You are a collective of people. He's uprooting this idea of individualism. And when that happens, it's actually a beautiful thing that takes place. Let me just say this. Whenever I hear of people's radical generosity, it's always inspiring. I've never heard of somebody being radically generous and thought, well, that was foolish. I always get inspired when I, when I see other people acting this out in today's day and age which really leads to the real point of this story. Let's talk about Peter for just a moment. Why does he unleash on Ananias and Sapphira the way that he does? I mean, isn't the church about grace? Isn't the church about love and forgiveness? I mean, they were already giving money. Why would you complain about them like not giving all of the money? Like, are you being greedy? What is going on here? These are all really good questions to throw at the text. But let me just start with the backstory. Peter has a past. 
And, and he's the one who denied Jesus. This is the guy that when things got dicey at the crucifixion, he repeatedly told people that he did not know Jesus, even though he did know Jesus. This is that guy. And now he's in charge of the church. That might be giving us a clue to why authenticity matters so much to him. It matters to him because he knows what it's like to be inauthentic. For Peter, this is not about the money. Nowhere in this passage do we see even the slightest shred of greed on the part of the church leaders. What grieves Peter to no end is the dishonesty. It's the lack of authenticity, the lack of integrity, pretending to be someone or something that you're not. That's what gets him all fired up. Whatever you do, according to Peter, don't come in here making a show of generosity, giving us the impression that all of this money we got from this land and we're giving it to you. Don't, don't do that. Why? Because few things will kill the life of a community faster than pretending. I, I really believe this, that nothing erodes what the church is intended to be like hypocrisy. Hypocrisy will keep the church from being what it was created to be. It is, it is a threat. Hypocrisy is the threat that rises up from within the church. This is not coming from outside. This is coming from inside. And it is greater than anything that could come from the outside. Now, well, what is hypocrisy? Well, some people say uh, it's, it's not practicing what you preach. You know, you, you say these things, but you, you do something different than what you've preached. Not according to this story. Let me just... Let me just point this out to you. Hypocrisy is practicing something on the surface that isn't true in the heart. Hypocrisy is putting on a false self. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretending to be something that we're actually not. And I hope you see the difference between those two things. I might say something and then do something against what I said. That's not hypocrisy. Just not doing what I said isn't that. It's simply this idea that I'm pretending to be someone or something that I'm not. There's something on the surface that you see. There's a veneer, but in my heart, there's something different. Hypocrisy is pretending. Now, the real question is, why do we do this? Why do we pretend? Why would Ananias and Sapphira sell this piece of land, hold a little bit of money back, and then pretend they gave all of it? Why would they do this? And why would we do this sort of thing? And the immediate answer is really simple. We do it to impress others. We do it uh, we do it to look good. We, we do it to put on an air of superiority. We want to feel like we're something. We don't want to lose credibility. We want to gain power. There's all sorts of reasons on the surface, but what's the real reason we do this? I truly think the real reason we do this is that there is deep existential insecurity in our hearts about who we are and about what we're worth. We question our worth. We question our value. And so we put on masks. We put on pretense because we are ultimately insecure about who we are. And we want people to believe something about who we are, hoping that we ourselves will begin to believe that. So we pretend. And ironically, when we live this way, it begins to erode us from the inside out. It erodes the very things that can give us what we're looking for. It, it erodes real community. When we begin to live artificially, when, when we begin to accept behaviors that clearly are pretending to, and people are being something that we know they're not, it becomes an unsafe place for people who have flaws. If you're a flawed person, you don't want to be around people who are pretending to be perfect. It becomes a quietly judgmental place where people are judging in the shadows. 
Um, lives stop being changed because people stop being honest about what's really going on in their own hearts and their own lives. Not only that, it is one of the most destructive, misinformed proclamations of what Jesus is actually all about. In fact, one of the reasons many of us have struggled in our faith in Christ is the artificial nature of Christians that we've known. Like somewhere there was somebody who was pretending and you just sort of knew we're not getting all the story. And so we start to doubt the power of Jesus because you see the falsehood, which ultimately means that hypocrisy will keep the world from turning upside down. See, I just need you to understand this. The Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't get the gospel. They were looking for people to validate them. They, were, they wanted people to give them a sense of meaning. All the wrong sources, all the wrong gods, if you will, to fill them with meaning. They were using their efforts in this community to find worth. And it is the opposite of the gospel. That behavior is the opposite of what Jesus is all about. It, this thing is never about the money. It's about authenticity. It's about transparency. It's about getting real. It's about keeping it real. This, this new community is about shaping a new kind of Christian, one who is real and one who is open, one who is honest, one, one who's, who isn't afraid to, to talk about failures and brokenness and weaknesses and mistakes and bad decisions. Because that honesty, when that happens, we experience the gospel. When we talk about the way we're finding our security in something other than all that stuff, it's an invitation for others to come experience that same thing for themselves. I'm just going to speak to all of you who are part of B4 right now. Um, I just want to say that one of the things I am most committed to when it comes to us being the church, is us being a church that is authentic and transparent. I never, ever want you to be a part of this community thinking that you have to be somebody you're not or pretend to be something that you're not. And I'm just gonna tell you this, I'm gonna do the same in front of you. Um, in fact, years ago, uh, when I first sat down with the elders of the church I was at prior to this, um, we were discussing this possibility of me becoming their pastor. And I was in this season of life where I was just done pretending and, and done acting like I was one thing here and another thing there. And I just saw the hypocrisy and, and what existed in the church. And I remember sitting with these elders and I just looked at them and I said, I need you to know I'm just going to be me. And you're going to see my scars and my brokenness. And I'm going to admit my mistakes and my failures. And we're going to journey together. And I just can't be a part of this if you don't agree with joining me in this. And I'll never forget them looking at each other and then looking at me and saying, that's exactly the kind of church that we wanna be. Now, let me just tell you as a pastor, that isn't to say there aren't moments. Um, certainly there are some people because of Christian culture, there are some people who have expectations of me that aren't me. Uh, they want me to be something or do something that I don't do and something that I, I maybe I'm not that kind of person. And every now and then I do get a little note and somebody makes a few suggestions on how I should be a little bit different. But let me just tell you this, the only expectation I live up to is the one that says we are all living out the gospel together in community with transparency and honesty. In fact, I think sometimes there's this fear, <laughs> this fear, especially in the church, that if we all confessed our sins, we'd be struck dead. But it turns out the real death comes when we hide our brokenness and we pretend to be something that we're not. 
that's what this is showing us. In fact, can I, can I just encourage you to think about this for a moment? I, I don't know if you've noticed this in your life, but I've noticed it in mine, that I've never lost respect for somebody when they were transparent and honest about their own brokenness. I don't know if that's true for you, but I know for me, I've never had somebody come to me and say, hey, here's my struggle, or here's my failure, or here's my decision that I made that I shouldn't have made. I've never had somebody be transparent and I've lost respect. I always gain respect for people who are open with me about their own lives. This is why this matters so much because it encourages us to become the community we were created to become. So so the gospel, when we understand the gospel, we understand it makes this statement over us that we are accepted and loved in our worst condition it actually becomes an invitation. It becomes an invitation for us to lay down the pretense. I don't have to pretend. Jesus accepted me in my worst possible state. It is this invitation to be authentic. I can just be myself in front of you. It's an invitation to be transparent. Here's where I am. Here's what's happening in my life now. It is this invitation for us as a church to be perfectly imperfect, if you will, and in turn, turn the world upside down. That's what all of this is about, that we would be the kind of community that is open and honest and real and transparent and that we would turn the world upside down because of it. I want to give you some time to think about this. I want to give you some time to think about the areas of your life where maybe you feel pressure to perform, pressure to put on airs. Maybe even when you think about coming back to church, maybe the reason you're so relieved watching wherever you are today is that you feel like you can be a little more authentic, a little more transparent. I want you to think about the reasons why. And I just want to invite you to take some time to ask the question, what would it look like if I just let go of the pretense and let myself be who I am before Jesus and others? I'll be back in a minute and I'll offer a benediction. Whose power can't be questioned or contained With humble fame He rules the earth and heavens His glory knows no measure or refrain And it's bursting past the borderlines of space upon the praises of our hearts Jesus you're the king and you're the center of it
Accept this invitation to this new kind of life that is being offered to you, and may you realize that you are already as loved and accepted as you are ever going to be. And may you extend grace and hope and love to those around you in the same manner that it has been extended to you. I love you guys, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>